This is Sci-Fi Talk, the podcast on how sci-fi, fantasy, horror, and comics help us explore our humanity. I've completely noticed it. I've, I'm feeling it, you know, palpably wherever I go in the world. And I just got back from two weeks in Europe. And I'm wondering what this resurgence is all about. But it's, it, there seems to be a collective real interest in uh, revitalizing Janeway. When I first went over to Discovery, which is now five years ago, yeah. um, that group felt very much like Next Gen to me. And they were eager and they were mostly curious, you know, they quiz me about the conventions and the crews or what are the fans like and what, you know, <laughs> so it was, I was there as a director, but I was also there as a, uh, a, a liaison to the, I guess, to the family. And, and now that we're, I'm actually in the middle of, I'm, I'm doing the first half of the season finale on five, 10 days, finishing it up. I have a couple more days. I go up on Thursday to back to Toronto. It's the show has gotten back on, track it's like an action adventure show again discovery they gave me those the foam rubber painted blue and said make it look lethal and i went you got to be kidding and um <laughs> we did our best and and then they put us in 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 costumes that were laughable and the makeup itself is laughable yeah. um and, and so that that didn't help either so what we tried to do the the core ferengi group we tried to make them as real and as human and uh, as sympathetic as we possibly could. Welcome to Trek Tuesday. I'm Tony Tolado, and we just heard Kate Mulgrew, Jonathan Frakes, and Armin Shimmerman as Armin talked about The Last Outpost on The Next Generation, as this is the first episode of my Trek Chats. It's been compiled from interviews done in the last year or so. And here is Trek Chats, where I open the vault and see what lies inside. Star Trek Prodigy is no more. This series, to me, introduced younger fans to Star Trek with relatable characters. Before the start of season two, I spoke briefly to Kate Mulgrew. Great to talk to you. I've been a big fan of yours for a long time, so this is a real thrill. As far as the hollow Janeway, as... And I really want your opinion on this. Has she evolves and connects with the crew? Do you think she's getting closer to the real Janeway as far as her empathy and her personality? No, but I'd say she's getting closer to a certain kind of sentience. Captain Janeway stands alone. Admiral Janeway stands alone. Hologram Janeway must, by necessity and definition, stand alone. But that doesn't mean that she cannot be dimensional. And so this dimension is growing and it's deepening. And, you know, in the minds of young children who are the tar target audience, I think they're, they're finding this increasingly compelling. How has she changed from season one to two a little bit? Well, I will say that uh, she has, <laughs> uh, her sense of humor has uh, developed and evolved. And this is crucial uh, if we're going to mentor ch uh, children, if we're going to mentor anyone. Children respond to humor because what it does is it relaxes them and allows for a certain degree of confidence to rise to the surface. So Hologram Janeway has learned through her own uh, mistakes with Dahl in particular to lighten up, throw up her hands and say, if you don't want to listen and if you want to continue to fall out of the chair, that's up to you. But she mm -hmm. has a certain lightness of tone. And I think that this goes a long way. Mm hmm. What, ha what kind of reaction have you gotten from the younger viewers that are watching it, especially on Nickelodeon? 
kids just love this. And they love it for all the right reasons, because they're the most discerning audience in the world. I love it when adults say we are the discerning ones because we're cynics and (laughs) we've read and learned everything. Children naturally, organically, temperamentally understand that this is excellent content. And they're right to think that because I think the Hegemans, Kevin and Dan, have brought to it a level of brilliance that you, you just don't see. In animated television, I, uh, it's, it's feature film quality and the writing is superb. And I think this is all probably down to uh, the genius uh, of Alex Kurtzman. I think what's been fantastic is the renaissance for Star Trek Voyager because of streaming. Like I can watch Year of Hell, when I, one of yeah. my favorite episodes, back to back in the same day. Originally I had to wait a week. Have you noticed that? The popularity for Janeway has only increased since then. I've completely noticed it. I've, I'm feeling it, you know, palpably wherever I go in the world. And I just got back from two weeks in Europe. And I'm wondering what this resurgence is all about. But it's, it, there seems to be a collective real interest in uh, revitalizing Janeway. Yeah, including the statue in Evansville. I mean, yes. that's fantastic. Yes, yes. I'm going personally on the 23rd to uh, see this myself. Wow, that's amazing. I actually had uh, Jerry Taylor on when I was on New York radio when Mosaic came out back in 96. Yeah. And you were all shooting the California time uh, travel episode. Right. Uh, a really good book. And I know you did the audio version of, for, that, for that. You read that and performed it. Uh, I mean, that's a really good story as the backstory for Janeway as to who she was originally. Have you uh, had a chance to revisit that a little bit recently or kind of look back on her? Well, and then I just did I just did the audio version of Uma McCormick's book um, about uh, Catherine Janeway. You know, these books, these these biographies are are, are very important to an actress uh, like me. I, I can steal from them what I need to steal and then I can endow Janeway with my own uh, history. And mm. that's very important because it's a deeply personal uh, marriage between character and, and actor. It's been a pleasure. The only regret I have, I didn't get a chance to see you perform live your Catherine Hepburn show. That would have uh, been a real treat. Oh, maybe she'll be revitalized. Very nice <laughs> talking to you, Tony. Good luck to you. Bye-bye. Same, same here. Bye-bye now. There's more Trek Tuesday, so stay tuned. Next, I chat about Ferengis and one of the men that brought them to life in Armin Shimmerman. You know, I got I to gotta be honest with you. Uh, and I actually talked to Herbert Wright years ago because he created the Ferengi. But when I first saw The Last Outpost, I was like, that's the new villains on Star Trek? I don't know. Yeah, I felt the same way and I was there. Uh, yeah, I know. <laughs> I've been apologizing for that performance for 25 years. Um, it... it um, it wasn't very good, and there, uh, I blame it mostly on myself. There may have been people who helped make it not so good, but that's what I said. These are the new villains? No. Um, and, and really, my work on Deep Space Nine, uh, which was after that particular episode on Next Generation, was my attempt to, tro- to rectify the, the Ferengi and make them a little bit more than a little bit three-dimensional. Well, actually, that was my, after seeing Quark, I, I said, oh, wait a minute. There, there's more to this guy than just on the surface and profit and, and latinum. And just the way you developed him over the years and the writers hooked into your talents. And uh, and it's like, oh, OK, I, I, I'm on board with them now because of Quark. Well, thank you. Thank you. I, I, 
many people may not agree with me, but I always thought that uh, Quark and the Ferengi were the most human of characters on Star Trek. Um, they they suffered from foibles, absolutely, but but they also had uh, fortes as well, and and that mix I think made them more human than some of the other people, not just the aliens, but the humans as well. I also liked that. He was like my anchor. It's like everything could be going around it with other Ferengi and all the different things that happened. But it was like Quark kind of centered it for me. You know, he was like, oh, okay. well, Quark is there. So I can kind of, you know, I can kind of get into the other stuff, too. But I know he's there. I know what he's made of. And I'm going to go along with the rest of the story because of him. Well, thank you. Thank you. Uh, The trick to creating a three dimensional character is to have a great deal of reality about you. And so uh, thanks to the writers, thanks to the directors, thanks to the designers, thanks to the other actors, uh, I was able to always find that reality, play that reality, and maybe that attracted you because that, those original Ferengi uh, were not real and they, mm-hmm. and, they, and they were rather one-dimensional. And uh, once again, I apologize for that. <laughs> the only thing I miss is that those things that they would fling out. Those, oh, yeah, those disappeared after that episode. They never used those again. They, they gave me those the foam rubber painted blue and said, make it look lethal. And I went, you got to be kidding. And, um, <laughs> We did our best, and and then they put us in 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 costumes that were laughable, and the makeup itself is laughable, yeah. um, and, and so that that didn't help either. So, what we tried to do, the the core Ferengi group, we tried to make them as real and as human and uh, as sympathetic as we possibly could. Mm-hmm. If I have a favorite, I have to say, Little Green Man was a great yeah. episode. That was a lot of fun to watch. Thank you. It was a great fun to do as well. Um, and we actually, it's the only episode I think that I know of where uh, the Ferengi speak Ferengi. Yes, uh, that's right. <laughs> which we made up on the spot as the camera was rolling. Get out. That's funny. Yeah. There's something that's a phenomenon that's happened with Deep Space Nine that didn't happen when it was on the air, kind of like the original Trek, but because of the world of streaming, people are discovering the show for the first time and it's become super popular again. And all the great work all of you have done is just reaching a whole new audience. And I think that's terrific. I, I am very glad to hear that because when we were first shooting and first airing the program, uh, we had a lot of detractors. A lot of people didn't like it because we didn't have a ship. We didn't go anywhere. Uh, what kind of Star Trek is that? And uh, we had a lot of detractors. Um, I, there's a, there's an overblown story about the not visitor and I talking and I'm saying, wait, wait a decade or so people will see what the good writing is, what the good acting is. And, and they'll come on board. It may not be now, but it may be later. And this is later. And, and I'm glad to hear that that's happening. Well, another thing too, is because we had to wait a week back in the day. And I know I watched them on the air. You had to wait a week. It was a two parter. It was like, Oh no, but because of streaming, you could binge. And that's another reason why people can, I mean, you start one and you, next thing you know, you're in season three before you can blink. So, right. It, one of the things that we, I'm not sure that we started, but we certainly helped push was uh, linear stories that expanded beyond one episode. The original Star Trek Next Generation were all about saving a world in 45 minutes. Mm-hmm. And then you moved on to another world. 
um, we told we told long form stories so that you had to stick with us for a number of episodes. And I'm sorry you had to wait a week. So did we. We had to get a script. Every <laughs> week. Um, and, um, you know, and, and that because of streaming, it's easier to watch because you're right. Oh, I watched that one. Let's watch another one. It's only 10 o'clock. Let's watch a third one. Um, and, and you can do that with streaming, which you couldn't do when we were originally shooting the show. And big screen TVs doesn't hurt either. It's great to see the station you know, the, up there. The makeup, uh, at least mine, uh, holds up pretty well. And uh, that's a tribute to my makeup artist, Karen Westerfield. Oh, you, I mean, yeah, they just did everything right on that show. And to me, it, it's the most diverse Star Trek show ever done. Maybe until Discovery anyway, but it really had a lot of diversity. It, yes, it did. And uh, it made it expensive as well, because uh, Michael Westmore, who was the creator of all those aliens and makeup, um, he had to come up with something every week. Uh, Bob Blackman, the costume designer, had to come up with a with, a, you know, clothes for a new world every week. I suppose you had to do that on TNG as well. But but we had more aliens on, on Deep Space Nine than they had on, on Next Generation. And and certainly Quark had quite a wardrobe, too. Yes, uh, I was quite a uh, fashion plate on the show. Uh, Bob, Bob used to say he, he, that was, I was his favorite character to design for. And uh, they were warm. <laughs> they were warm clothes, uh, but they were very uh, pretty. And, and, uh, and I was very striking in those tails and, and vests and things. You know, as an actor, you kind of get used to your space. I mean, your stage was the bar, really. And did you actually know where everything was in the bar? No, so, no, 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 no. <laughs> I knew where my trailer was. That was the important thing. <laughs> um, uh, no, and, and they changed things. Uh, the bottles changed from time to time. The basic set was always the same, although even the set changed a little. We had an upper floor in the first season, perhaps the first two seasons, which they got rid of after that because it, it just they weren't using it. Yeah. Um, and the walls moved so that that uh, the configuration also changed. Mm -hmm. um, but uh, no, I didn't know where everything was, but it was very comfortable for me. The whole set, w w one of the great joys of working on Deep Space Nine was that normally when you do a TV show, uh, sets are subdivided on a big right. sound stage so that, you know, that they don't really connect. They're just little modules mm -hmm. and they sit right next to each other. But on Deep Space Nine, the promenade, as you saw it on the screen, is the way it existed on, on Soundstage 7. Wow. So that when you walked in, you were on the north side of the promenade. And as you progressed south, um, you got to the south side of, of the promenade. And there was no subdivision. It was exactly the way you saw it. As opposed to, and, and no criticism, as opposed to, again, ne next generation, the uh, the the medical center is a little cubicle sitting next to the bridge and, and, and they don't connect. They're just modules. Ours was, it was a little like, like being in Disneyland. And I remember my first day of work, uh, I was overawed by, by that set because it was so huge and so continuous and mm -hmm. so alien and so such an adventure to explore. Mm -hmm. Well, we've seen Ferengi on Discovery. I don't think we would see them without Quark, honestly. But have you seen the new makeup on them? I, I haven't. People have. I've seen comments about that. Uh, um, I haven't really seen it, but I, I did get a glimpse of one once, and, and it looks better. It, it's less comical. And yes. That's a, but I, I do remember... <laughs> 
an episode that we did on Deep Space Nine called Trouble with Tribbles. Oh, yeah. And, and where they immersed our characters into a, a original Star Trek episode. And one of my favorite lines ever on Star Trek is someone turns to Worf and said, how come you guys look very different than those guys? And Worf says, we don't like to talk about it. So if they've changed the Ferengi episode, the, the excuse me, the, the Ferengi facade, um, uh, I'm, I'm more than happy. And we'll talk about it once I get to know more about it. Well, it's funny because uh, Enterprise did a, an episode to explain what happened with the Klingons. So it, it's, uh, it was a disease, believe it or not. So it was, uh, and they had to infuse them with human DNA. And that's why they looked human for a while. I see. Yeah. Well, it, made, it certainly made it easier for Michael Dorn to play Worf. Absolutely. Yes, it did. It certainly did. Trek Tuesday continues. So stay tuned. Let's wrap things up with Jonathan Frakes as we chatted about the Star Trek movies in the upcoming Picard, Star Trek Discovery, and his directing career. Well, I actually was in the, uh, I've actually covered the roundtables for First Contact and Insurrection. No kidding. And you came in the room, you were the last one for, for First Contact, and you said, how did we do? And I was the only one that said, I think you got a hit on your hands. Oh, <laughs> what a great movie that was. That was fantastic. And you know what the impact of that movie was? I'm mm -hmm. a huge Green Bay Packer fan. They were, they were playing the Panthers for the championship game. Somebody had a banner at Lambeau Field that said, resistance is futile. Oh, fantastic. <laughs> fantastic. Yeah, we, I went to see, a, we had hosted a kind of a, I guess it was the 25th anniversary of it this year, last year. Yeah. Alfred came and a bunch of people from the oh. camp came and uh, John Knoll came from from um, ILM and Herman Zimmerman, the designer in Berman. And it was, it was so, it was such a great reunion of the filmmakers part of it. And yeah. Because the script was bulletproof. I mean, oh, yeah. <laughs> it had everything. And then the casting of Alfrey and, and James Cromwell, who had just come off Babe. Alice. Yeah. Yeah. It was really something. Yeah. I'm, I remember walking into this. These were the days where Paramount would fly you places. They put, uh, us, up yeah. to, they put us up to four seasons. We went to see it in Paramount Studios and, and that, an amazing screening room. Yeah. And uh, so that was fun. Another thing on Insurrection, I was talking to F. Murray Abraham and he, was telling, he was telling me the story that he was, you know, he was at the end when Picard and Sona and the Sona were fighting each other. Um, he was he was firing his gun, and then you said you, you yelled "cut," and he was like, "What? What's going on?" And he kept going. Psh, psh, psh. Yeah, 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 yeah. He's a riot. He's on the White Lotus now. He's killing it. Oh, he's fantastic. He was yeah. he was a great interview too. Yeah, I bet he is. He he he's not afraid to talk. No, not at all. I had him on Orville as well. He's he's a fabulous actor. Oh, oh. he is. Well, I got to tell you something about. Something I noticed as far as your directing. Um, yes. so I say this kind of very lighthearted, but so Star Trek and Star Trek First Contact, you had right. Brett do that jump on the Ascender rig. So, yeah. and he yeah. said, if you're lucky, you can see, because I was at his round table, he was saying, if you're lucky, you can see my face if you pause it. And then an insurrection, 
you had him go in 32 degree water. <laughs> oh my God. He was miserable. And then I used the stunt man doing it. He was, he's still talking about that. <laughs> and, and then your own wife in Thunderbirds, Jeannie plays a reporter. Oh my God. In the rain and the wind. And oh, you're, she's getting pelted. <laughs> Tony, you've done some good deep diving. It's like when I saw the, all those things and, and since I covered first contact and insurrection as well, uh, it was, and then when I saw Thunderbirds, I was like, whoa, what's it with this guy? He's doing the people he loves. He's the people he doesn't love. <laughs> so, but that was, that was fun. I had to bring that up because that was uh, that's something else. You know, what's fascinating, I remember when you talked about the out, you know, directing your first episode, Outcast, and now I'll, I'll, okay, off, The Offspring. Uh, wonderful, wonderful episode. And now you're you have a hand in literally kind of shepherding these shows, you know, from a directorial, uh, directorial point of view, discovery, uh, you know, at strange new worlds. What's it like to to work with these different groups of people? And they're all making Star Trek. It's like a, a new golden age has opened up here. It's, it's amazing. I'm so blessed to be part of this next next generation of Star When I first went over to Discovery, which is now five years ago, yeah. um, that group felt very much like Next Gen to me. And they were eager and they were mostly curious. You know, they quizzed me about the conventions and the crews or what are the fans like. And, well, you know, <laughs> so it was, I was there as a director, but I was also there as a, uh, a liaison to the, I guess to the family, and and now that we're, I'm actually in the middle of, I'm, I'm doing the first half of the season finale on five. Tim Day's finishing it up. I have a, a couple more days. I go up on Thursday to back to Toronto. It's the show has gotten back on track. It's like an action adventure show again. Discovery, nice. and that that group of people has been a real delight to be to watch grow and watch join the family. And they're all, you know, it's a. Um, as you know, 55 years ago, this thing with Shatter is still out on the trail, man. You'll still see him at the conventions. He's, he's quite a a phenomenon to me. Yeah. I think what was, (laughs) I I talked to Mike Mahan lately, uh, of course, of Lower Decks. Yeah. He's a genius too. Yeah. And you directed the crossover episode. Yes. I was just about to bring strange new worlds up that episode. (laughs) They take some big swings over there at Strange New Worlds. Yeah. And uh, this one, I think, was quite a successful one. And McMahon was directing the uh, animated part of it, you know, the voices. And I was on the call because I was directing the episode. And I'm learning so much from him because I've been on a couple of Lower Decks as Riker. Yes. And it's it's certainly a heightened uh, Riker and a heightened world. And, and, and McMahon... And he's such a trekker, man. He really gets in the weeds. He and uh, Tony Newsom, who is also in this crossover show, who plays Mariner on Lower Yes, are really deep dive Easter egg trekkers, and they they love it. It's like a it's like a game for them. It's like a challenge. He said he was tortured because they kept sending him pictures from the set. Yeah, because he was working on the animated show, and it was like, oh man. <laughs> Yeah, we had Jack Quaid and Tawny with us. And it was also that show, I, because I was with um, Anson and Ethan Peck. Ethan, when Ethan was finding Spock and Anson was the 
captain for the season three of uh, season two. Season two of Discovery, yeah. Discovery. So I was thrilled to see them. And Anson's got a wicked comic <laughs> He's really dry. He, he's got it. So, and Rebecca, I've done three shows with Rebecca. So it was fun to be on that set. And I met all the new cast, obviously, but to have, a, you know, it's fun to come on a set where you've got a relationship with, uh, with the cast, especially when, when you know the top couple of numbers. Yeah. Really their set, you know, when you, when you're a guest as a director, I always go during prep and sit around in the back with the key grip or somebody and say, so what's the story here? And then you could watch how you really watch how the set is run. And generally it's the tone of, of the number one that, that sets the way the room runs. And I have to ask you for Picard, what a reunion come, you know, is that oh already God. shot by the way? Yeah, we're finished. As wow. I talked, wow. To Terry, uh, I talked to Terry yesterday and he said it's all the uh, visual effects are done. We're, it's cut and ready to go. Wow. So it's, uh, I'm so excited. And I think the fans are going to plot when they see some of the things. It's <laughs> well, just, I'll tell you, I, it's, I, I mean, just covering you guys in person. There was a moment during the insurrection junket where Patrick is standing in the middle. You're on one side and Brent's on the other side. And it was, I think it was just, it was just after one of them was done and everybody was to get, you were all together. And yeah. we got a taste of what it must be like on the set because you were all bouncing off each other and we're sitting there going, wow. <laughs> well, it was nuts. <laughs> it was really nuts. And uh, it was as if we finished work on Friday and came back on Monday, you know? It had that kind of, of course, we're pretty close. Some casts aren't as close as we are, but we, we've, been, we've been in each other's lives as, you know, friends. And we stood up at each other's weddings and godparents to each other's kids and gone through divorces. And I mean, it's been a very, it's a very tight family. Yeah, I got the sense of that. I, you know, that, that moment and really during the junkets I covered, I was also there for, Insurrect uh, for Nemesis as well. So, uh, yeah. Boy, what went wrong there? Um, I think there was too much Shizan and Picard, too much bickering back and forth. And yeah. I, I think that was missing. But the action sequences were amazing. Yeah. yeah. And it sort of introduced Tom Hardy to the movie world. It sure did. Yeah. Sure did. You know, he shook hands with everybody in that, in that roundtable that day. <laughs> he did. He went around the room. It was really cool. And, and Marina was just entertaining us. I mean, we were just all, we, we had to sh be quiet so we wouldn't laugh during the recordings because it was so she was so funny. She's a riot. Yeah. And I, the, my biggest memory is actually leaving the room and Stuart Baird was there with his pugs. <laughs> it was really wild. But, uh, his yeah. pugs? His dogs? Yeah, he had his dogs there. Yeah. <laughs> That's wild. Those were fun. I mean, I covered those three, and, and that, was, uh, that was fun to do those. Uh, one in L.A. and then two in New York. But uh, that was a lot of fun. And it was uh, it, so this, this cast is kind of special to me because I've been involved with them a little bit. So yeah, it sounds like you know everybody. I talked to a few. <laughs> yeah. Actually, I talked to Michael last year, and boy, we went on a riff about Westerns that you cannot believe. 
you know, he loves Westerns. Oh, Michael Dorn. Yeah. Oh, oh yeah. Oh, does he ever? <laughs> yeah, he's trying to get a project off the ground now that uh, sort of a black Western that he's, he's been talking about for years and he's really jazzed up about it. Mm, yeah, it could happen. There's been a few already, so why not? You know, it was so cool to see Riker on the, um, on the Titan, you know, in the season finale for Picard. That was so, so cool. That was such and- a surprise to me that they went down that road. I was, because in, in the episode, I was, you know, essentially retired. Yeah. We were living up on uh, this other planet. That was, again, the great Michael Shabon, who I wish was still with us. What a writer. What a yeah. good No, he, it was a, that season was really cool. You know, I really enjoyed the first season a lot. Yes. You know, that was, uh, that was nice. And I think this one's going to wrap it up really nicely, too, with all of you together. Yeah, yeah. I, I think it's going to be, it's going to be, uh, well, I, you know, it was certainly fun to make. And I think you can tell sometimes. When you're yeah, in- I think you can. Yeah, absolutely. When you're in the kitchen, yeah. And that is Trek Chats. I'm Tony Tolado for Trek Tuesday.